This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Anyone remember The Lord of the Rings? Anybody like those books or movies for those of you that don't read? (laughs) I have to say, I'm a little bit of a Tolkien nerd. I have like all of his collection, all of the works, all of the appendices, all the things. You should see it. My daughter and I like to nerd out and we love the movies, but we absolutely adore the books. But if you're familiar with the movies or the books, you know that the Lord of the Rings tells the story of the one ring to rule them all. The ring that was forged in the fires of Mordor, right? In the darkness, one ring to rule them all that had power over all these other rings. And so, of course, you know, Frodo and Samwise and all the characters in the fellowship, they go off to return this ring back to the fire to destroy it. And it's this quest and it's, it's an awesome movie. It's beautiful film, a lot of wonderful symbolism and, and imagery in that, in that movie particularly. But the one thing about the ring of power that's interesting is that out of all the rings that are given out to all these different characters throughout Middle Earth, I know we're really, we're starting to nerd out now, look out. There was one ring that was designed to have power over all of them. And in the same way, the writer of Hebrews has come to a place in the story that he's telling where he's about to describe one sacrifice to rule them all. One single sacrifice for sin that is going to lay waste to all the other sacrifices up until that point. And picking up with verse one of chapter 10, it says this. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. That's what we're doing today. We're drawing near to worship. Verse 2, otherwise, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all. Say once for all and would no longer have felt guilt for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and the blood of goats to take away sins. Now let's skip down to verse eight. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. We're gonna unpack all this in just a moment. Verse nine. Then he said, Jesus said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first covenant, the covenant of the law, the Mosaic covenant. Pastor Canis talked about all the different covenants, right? A very specific covenant. He sets that aside to establish the second or the better or the new covenant that we've just been talking about. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ Once for all, say it with me one more time, once for all. Title of my message is One Sacrifice to Rule Them All. One Sacrifice to Rule Them All. Today I wanna encourage you to grab a hold of, of, I think, one of the most revolutionary truths about you and your relationship with God because of what Jesus did in paying the full price 
for your sins once and for all. Through his one sacrifice, through Jesus giving his own body and shedding his own blood for us, he actually makes a way for us as outsiders, as Gentiles, as those that didn't have a relationship or covenant with God, to draw near, to now worship him like we've been doing this morning, without guilt, without condemnation, and without shame. Without guilt, without condemnation, and without shame. No longer do we need to bring the blood of bulls and goats to atone for, to atone for our wrongs, because Jesus has already done that. A couple weeks ago, I made the statement, wouldn't it be crazy if instead of marching in here with our coffee and Starbucks, we had to bring <laughs> goats and bulls? <laughs> Could you imagine how noisy and stinky and smelly and bloody that would be? Yeah, it'd be insane. But because of what Jesus has now done for us, he sets aside the first covenant, the Mosaic one, to establish a new and better covenant. Today I wanna to look at what I'm gonna call three ways that Jesus has actually accomplished this for us. We're gonna use some big theological language today. Are you ready? Are you ready for some new vocabulary? Yeah, I think it'll be fun. We're gonna look at three big terms that I actually believe every believer, every person who follows Jesus, who's put their hope, faith, and trust in Christ needs to have ownership of. Are you ready? Here they are, let's put them up there. One propitiation, two, expiation, and three, sanctification. I'll say it again. Number one, propitiation. Number two, expiation. And number three, sanctification. For some of you that have been following Jesus a while, been believers for a while, you may be familiar with some of these terms. But today, before we dive into defining these terms, I wanna address what I'm gonna call the elephant in the room as it pertains to salvation, as it pertains to, to what it is that we're actually saved from. Now, when most people hear the word saved or they think of salvation, they typically think of it in terms of heaven or hell, right? We tend to think of we, we've been saved from the, the flames of hell or we've been saved so that we can go to heaven. And although that, that's true, biblically, it's technically accurate, it's actually not the primary focus of your salvation. It's not. In fact, part of the problem today in our culture and even amongst evangelicals, and I would say even Protestants, is that we have hyper-focused on heaven and hell, and we've actually missed the point of what God has saved us from. And here it is, his soon and coming wrath. Now, a lot of people don't like to talk about God's wrath. They feel a little uneasy when you start talking about God being a God of wrath. But how many of you guys know God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. God is a God of love, but he's also holy. And because he's a God of justice and because he's holy, he also has to judge sin and he has to deal with injustice and he has to make things that are wrong right. And in order to do that, he has to pour out his wrath upon those that deserve it. Now, for many of us, that's not the view we have when we come to God. We have this view that God owes us salvation, that God exists for our pleasure, that heaven is our, you know, our righteous reward, when what we actually deserve is judgment and the penalty for every wrong that we've committed, either on purpose 
or by omission. Things that we should have done that we didn't do. Every one of us deserves death. Now stop and just think about that for a moment. That's usually not the message we lead with when we're trying to help people get saved. Hey, you deserve death. <laughs> we're like, no, we want to package it, right? We want to make it nice, put a little sugar on that spoon. Hey, Jesus has got a good life for you full of blessings and peace and prosperity and goodness. And although that's true, the truth is none of us deserve that. None of us can earn that. And none of us are owed that reality. But because of what Jesus has done for us on that old rugged cross, we now are gifted the right to become his sons and daughters, the right to be his family, the right to be his kids, to be adopted into this thing we call the family of God. And we're given the free gift of salvation where God pours out all of his wrath on his son Jesus so that we can then experience his freedom and his life and what we're talking about today, salvation. Now, I think the reason why a lot of people get uncomfortable when you start talking about God's wrath is because if we're intellectually honest, we're all guilty of kind of picking and choosing the parts of God that we like, right? You've got those favorite books in the Bible. You probably have some favorite scriptures too. I do, and that's great. But some of us, and, and partially what's happened within our culture is that we've kind of We've kind of been guilty of picking and choosing the parts of God that we welcome and receive, and then we resist and kind of reject the parts that we don't like about God. And in doing so, what happens is we end up kind of remaking God in our own image. We kind of refit him to be this kind of moralistic, therapeutic kind of counselor in the sky who, who has a Pez dispenser, and if we pray hard enough and believe hard enough, maybe every once in a while he'll drop a little, little candy into our mouth and give us a little treat. And we kind of go to him as like this magical genie. And, and then like we start painting this picture of what he's like. And we don't want to reconcile the tough parts of scripture, the parts where God gets angry or where he pours out his wrath upon his enemies and those that oppose his son and his kingdom and his righteous rule in the earth. And so then what we end up with is a God of our own making, a God of our own creation. And this is so dangerous. And I think it's partially why we are where we are today in our culture. Partially why we, you and I see what's going on in the world and on the news, because we've reshaped God into our own image. But if you think about it, all of us crave justice. All of us want things that are wrong to be made right, don't we? When you're wronged, when someone cuts you off in traffic, you're like, ha, I hope that cop pulls them over, right? Don't you kind of think that, just me? <laughs> when someone does wrong to you, jumps in front of you, the grocery store, you're like there with all your kids and you got your card, Elizabeth, and you're trying to get, and then someone just cuts right in front. Oh, I've only got a couple items. And you're like, what? Now those are funny examples. But, but how about when, when, when children are abused and sold off into trafficking and slavery? Doesn't that just like infuriate you? Yeah. 
How about when, when injustice is experienced, when people are oppressed, when, when politicians use their influence to oppress and silence people, right? You, you feel like this, this, this anger boiling up inside you like, God, won't you just make that right? Right, we all have that in us innately when we're wronged, when people do that to us and when we see others do it to other people. We all have this internal justice thing. And we do so because we're made in the image of a God of justice, a God who is holy, a God of both wrath and love. So how much more do you think that God is grieved when he sees how humanity acts? When God sees what's going on in the world today, all the corruption and the lies and the deception and the evil that's perpetrated in the name of good. Think about how grieved he is in his heart. If you're grieved over it, how much more so do you think God is? And because he grieves, because he loves, he ultimately will judge. And so in many ways, when we say that we're saved, what we're talking about is we're, we're saved from the wrath of God that is coming and that has already come and been poured out on Jesus. More on that in a moment. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and it's desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Part of the problem today is that a lot of people start with the assumption that people are good, that the heart is good. Just follow your heart, man. Follow your dreams, kids. Your heart will never turn you astray. Your heart is never wrong. Just go with what feels right. That's the, that's the message from Disney in almost every movie. <laughs> Just follow your heart. Mm, when you wish upon a star. Mm. The prophet says, the heart's wicked. It's evil. It's deceitful. In fact, it's the most deceitful of all things. Who knows how really bad it is? You want to know who knows? Jesus knows. Listen to what Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his what? Heart. The problem, you see, is not just out there in the world and with the perpetrators of evil, all those that are doing wrong that make us get angry and make us rise up. The problem is actually in here. It's in the human heart. It's with the sinful condition of the heart, which is why the Mosaic law, the first covenant, was insufficient in being able to deal with it. And not only insufficient, it actually is incapable. The writer of Hebrews says it's impossible for that covenant to actually fully eradicate your sin, to fully purge and cleanse you from your sin. Let's read it again. Hebrews 10, one through four. The law is a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, 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 never by the same sacrifices make perfect those who draw near to worship. See, the problem was, is that no matter how many times Israel did this, no matter how many times the priests would, would perform these sacrifices and these rituals, it was temporary. It wasn't eternal. It wasn't lasting. It goes on to say, for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty. The problem was they, they would do this, but then they would go right back to feeling guilty again. 
the next day, and the day after, and the day after that. Because, verse 4 tells us, it is impossible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, sin has to be dealt with. The heart cannot be ignored. It can't be excused. Evil has to be wrestled with. Wickedness must be judged, which is why God pours out his wrath on sin and injustice and wickedness. And then Jesus drinks the full cup of it for you and for me. What's the picture of Jesus in John 17? He's, he's in the garden of Gethsemane. I've been there. Pastor Kansas has been there. Maybe some of you have been there. Just a little tiny quaint garden, a couple trees, small little place, nothing glorious. And Jesus is kneeling down in the soil and he's sweating drops of blood and he's saying to his father, Father, I know the mission for which I was born. I know the mission for which I was sent. But if there be any possible way for you to take this cup from me, please do so. Has anyone ever felt that way in the middle of your trial, your pain, your struggle, your suffering? God, if there just be any way for you just to take this from me, wouldn't that be wonderful? But then he makes this radical statement, but nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. See, in the will of God was a divine plan from before creation for Jesus to drink the full cup of God's wrath on your behalf and mine. And the good news of our salvation is that Jesus already did for us that which we can never do so that we can come into a relationship based on what Jesus has done. And Jesus is sitting there and he's in his anguish and he's bleeding. I mean, I've never sweated drops of blood. Some of you ladies who've given birth probably felt like you were pretty close. <laughs> but I've never gotten to the place where blood is pouring out of my pores because I'm so under the weight and the suffering of what is to come. Some of you that wrestle with anxiety, can I just encourage you, Jesus knows what that feels like. For some of you that feel crushed under the weight of pressure or burdens or brokenness, Jesus knows what that feels like. He's been there, which is why he is a wonderful high priest because he can relate to every human thing that you and I go through. Because as human flesh, he stood in our shoes. He's gone through betrayal. He knows what it's like to have somebody betray you. He knows what it's like to have somebody stab you in the back, to walk out on you, to discard you, to speak evil things about you, to mock you, to harm you, to abuse you. He's gone through it all. And yet he says to his father, our heavenly father, not my will, but your will be done. And then he accepts the cup of God's wrath and going to the cross. Because God is holy, because God is loving, and because he is just, he sends his son into the world not to condemn it, John 3, 17 tells us, but so that through Jesus, the world might be saved. Despite human atrocity, despite the wars, 
despite all the things that have happened and all the things that are happening and all the things that are to come. God loves his creation. And he's so committed to it that he literally sends his son to step into the gap to receive the full weight and penalty of our sin. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all of us like sheep have strayed. We have left God's path to follow our own. And yet the Lord has laid on him, meaning Jesus, the suffering servant, the sins of us all. God took all of your iniquity, your transgressions, your trespasses, the things that you did willfully, the things that you didn't know that you were doing that were wrong, and he placed it on the son. Jesus, the good shepherd, becomes the lamb who lays down his life for you and me. He becomes the single sacrifice, the one sacrifice to rule them all. In doing so, number one today, Jesus makes propitiation for our sin. To propitiate is to appease or satisfy the anger or wrath of another. In the biblical sense, propitiation has to do with God's wrath being appeased. The, the prefix in the word propitiation, the word pro, means for. When you're pro something, you're for something. What Jesus does is he appeases the wrath of God on your behalf and mine so that God, who was once at enmity with us, who was once against us because of our sin, because of what we've done, now changes his heart and his attitude so that he's for us, so that he's pro us. And this would happen once a year in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement. For the nation of Israel, this could only happen once a year. And it was done through what was, called, what was known as the single sin offering, the single sin offering was where the tabernacle of God, the meeting place of God, the holy place of God, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, was cleansed and all of the sins of the people were fully forgiven. They were wiped out. Let's look at it. Leviticus chapter 16, verse two through five. It paints a picture for us. The Lord said to Moses, warn your brother Aaron not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain whenever he chooses. If he does so, he will die. For the ark's cover, the place of atonement, is there. And I myself am present in the cloud above the atonement cover, sometimes it's translated as the mercy seat. When Aaron enters the sanctuary area, he must follow these instructions fully. He must bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He did that for himself. And then verse five tells us, Aaron must then take from the community of Israel two male goats for a single sin offering. So two goats, one offering. So here we see this idea of two goats presented for one single sin offering. One goat would be for propitiation and one goat would be for expiation. So let's break it down. Regarding the first goat, that's for propitiation. This goat would be killed, it'd be slain. And then its blood would be offered to temporarily appease God's wrath against Israel's sins as a nation. Remember, this only happened once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the result of this was that Israel would be able to be restored back into perfect fellowship, favor, and peace with God. Fellowship, favor, and peace with God. There's a biblical word for this, and it's the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is the perfect picture of fellowship, favor, and peace with God. Would you not agree that in the garden, 
Before sin, Adam and Eve, humanity in its essence, walked in perfect shalom with God. It was in perfect harmony, perfect balance, perfect favor, fellowship, and peace with God. And so every year on the Day of Atonement, Israel as a whole would present themselves before God. The high priest, in this case, Aaron, would come. He'd enter into the holy place. He would sacrifice a bull. He would sacrifice a ram to cleanse his own sins so that then he could then walk into the inner curtain behind the Holy of Holies, enter in, and then sacrifice the goat, placing the blood on the altar, placing the blood on the ark, placing the blood on almost everything so that all of the sins of the people could be atoned. We talked about a couple weeks ago. Power is in the, the blood. Life is in the blood. When blood is spilt, it speaks a word. And, and as we've already looked at, Jesus' blood is spilt to speak a better word over our lives, better than the, the blood of bulls and goats, better than the blood of Abel, right? That cries out for what? For justice, for wrath, for God to come and make right the things that are wrong. And so Israel steps into this place of shalom and fast forward to the cross. This is what Jesus is doing for us as our high priest. He's stepping into that place, not to offer a goat, not to offer the blood of a bull, but to offer his own blood. So that through his one sacrifice to rule them all, he can bring us into perfect shalom with God. Perfect fellowship, favor, and peace with God. Anybody just want that for your life? Can I tell you something? God's offering it to you right now. You don't have to wait for heaven to experience shalom on earth. It's already yours in Christ Jesus. That's the beauty of what Jesus does for us. He gives us a foretaste of what is to come. He brings us into the reality of what is coming now. So, through a single sin offering, he appeases God's wrath so that we can experience God's abundant favor. But not temporarily, not annually, not just once a year, but forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And here's the even better news. When you get saved... When you confess Jesus as Lord, believe that God raised him from the dead, you step into that reality now. Meaning you don't have to wait to the end of your life. You don't have to wait for heaven to come. You are standing in a reconciled, redeemed, restored relationship of perfect shalom with God. Perfect fellowship, favor, and peace with God. Okay, Pastor Jason, so God's wrath's been appeased, but what about my sin? What happens to that? Number two, Jesus makes expiation of it. He makes expiation of our sin. To expiate something is to fully remove it and carry it away. Jesus didn't die just to cover your sins. He died to remove them, to cleanse you from them. Under the Mosaic Covenant, the high priest would do this. Aaron himself would lay hands on the goat, on the other goat, the one that's still alive at this point, and he would symbolically transfer all the sin of the people into the goat. And then that goat would be led outside the camp to carry the sins of the people away. That goat would run out into the wilderness and eventually die or perish. Leviticus 16 again, now verses 20 through 22. When Aaron had finished purifying the most holy place in the tabernacle and the altar, he must present the live goat. He will lay both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it. That's important. I want you to underline that word. He will confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion and sins of the people of Israel. In this way, 
He will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. And then a man chosen for the task will then drive that goat into the wilderness. And as that goat goes out into the wilderness, it will carry all the people's sins, not some, but all, into a desolate land. This is where we get the the idea of a scapegoat. You guys have heard that term before. The tradition of this is actually kind of wild. Later, uh, rabbis would teach that to make sure the goat didn't come back to the camp, that they would actually send guys out to like push it over the cliff so that it would actually die. Pretty crazy. (laughs) The idea here is that God has not just purged the people of their sins, but he's purged his holy place of sin. He's purged the tabernacle, the place where he's enthroned above the cherubim of sin. He's taken it outside of the camp, outside of their dwelling place. And this is foreshadowing, remember the law is but a shadow of better things to come. It's foreshadowing what Jesus would do when he came to carry our sins and to take them away, to fully expiate them. Jesus would be led outside the camp, outside the walls of Jerusalem. I've been there to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place of death. Jesus would be led out to what? Carry our sins, to take away the sins of the world. That's why when John the baptizer sees Jesus show up in John chapter one, verse 29, he says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that expiates the sins of the world. Second Corinthians, the apostle Paul describing this reality says, for our sake, he made Jesus him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This couldn't happen unless there was a sin transfer, unless God took our sin and placed it on Jesus so that Jesus could be led out into the place of death to deal with it once and for all, with one sacrifice to rule them all. And this is good news. It's exactly why Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, 13 goes on to tell us day after day, priests stand and they perform their religious duties again and again and again and again. And this can never take away sin. But when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice, say it with me today, one sacrifice, One sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. It's a a beautiful picture of Jesus fulfilling the Davidic promise to, to, to be enthroned upon the throne of Israel forever and ever and ever until his enemies are made his footstool. And he does it by way of the cross. He does it by way of crucifixion. He does it by way of, of cleansing you of all your iniquity, all of your unrighteousness, all of your sin with one sacrifice to rule them all. With one. How amazing is this reality? God no longer counts your sins against you. This is the message of reconciliation that every one of us has received. Second Corinthians tells us that we are ambassadors now of this message, this, this ministry of reconciliation, of telling the whole world that God no longer is counting their sins against them if they would turn to Jesus, if they would place their hope in the one who took away all sin. That's why without Jesus, there ain't no hope for you. Because outside of Jesus, there's no way of being able to deal with your sin. But in Jesus, 
you have hope. You have fellowship. You have favor. You have peace. God's wrath is no longer burning towards you. His love is. And you've been set free. Hebrews 10, verse 17. Or excuse me, let's back up. Hebrews 8, 12 says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Did you guys know that God no longer remembers your sins? <laughs> That's good, preacher. <laughs> God no longer remembers your sins. It doesn't say that he forgot. It says that he no longer remembers them. You know what that means? It's an action that God takes to place your sins out of his own memory. To remember them no more. He chooses to do this. Hebrews 10, 17 echoes this. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Jesus takes your sin and he carries it away as far as the east is from the west. It's an idiom. It's an it's a, it's a, it's a expression. He throws it into the sea, never to be seen or heard from again. It's a beautiful picture of God choosing to remember our sins no more. So my question for us is if God no, rem no longer remembers your sins, why do you? you? Thought about that? Anybody else really good at kind of rehearsing their past? Remembering their past? <laughs> God no longer remembers your sins. I mean, it's, it's stated over and over throughout the Old and New Testament in Jeremiah's prophecy, here in Hebrews 8, here in Hebrews 10. He remembers them no more. So why are you still beating yourself up over things that Jesus has dealt with? God, this is the reality that we need to grab a hold of, church, because we're more sin conscious than we are righteous conscious. We're more conscious of the mistakes we make the things we do that are wrong, the places where we've blown it, and we rehearse it over and over and over, and we beat ourselves up, and we, we, we think in doing so that we're, we're somehow appeasing God, that we're, that we're you know, like, kind of like doing religious penance, we're atoning for, we're, we're trying to make amends, but, we're not, but actually, we're actually not doing that at all. In fact, what we're doing is an affront to Jesus who did all of it for us already. But if we could flip that around, where we begin to become righteousness conscious, where we're, we're just focused on what Jesus has done for us and we're rehearsing that in our minds all day and we're dwelling on that and we're meditating on that and we're thinking on that and that begins to shape us and define us and become our new reality. Could you imagine with me what our lives would look like? What our marriages would look like? What our kids' lives would look like? For many of you, this is not how you're raised. You're raised with, when I make a mistake, I better look over my shoulder because someone's going to whack me. Someone's going to beat me. <laughs> some of you had parents like that. Sorry. Maybe some of you are parents like that. We'll pray for you. But that's not the stance that God takes with us. 
he remembers them no more. Now, maybe you're, you're here today or you're watching this online or listening to this message and you, and you still feel caught up in sin. Maybe part of the problem is that you haven't fully entrusted that to God yet, or, or maybe it still has some kind of power over you. Can I encourage you to do what the scriptures actually tell us to do? Number one, confess your sin to the Lord. Confess it to the Lord. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all wickedness. To cleanse us. And he says the word confess. It's in the same way that Aaron would confess the sins of the people over the goat, that's what you're doing. That's what God's inviting you to do. Confess your sins so that Jesus can take them. So that Jesus can take them. I want to encourage you today. Give it to God. Hand it to him. Release it to him. Relinquish it to him. I know easier said than done, but part of the problem is that for many of us, like, we think God doesn't know about stuff that he knows about. We need to come into agreement with what he says about it and what he's done about it. Amen? And we do that through confession. And we, and we don't have to do that every time we mess up. We need to do it so that we can be made right with the Lord, so we can step into shalom with the Lord. But if sin's still something that you struggle with, or maybe there's, there's secret sin, or there's habitual sin in your life, there's addictions or whatever, then the next step that you need to take is you need to confess it to another. James 5.16 says it this way, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can be healed. We don't confess our sins to each other so that we can be forgiven. We confess our sins to each other so that we can be healed. The reason some of you are not healed is because you're hiding. You're trying to pretend that your life is all that. <laughs> Let's be honest. Let's be real. Many of us struggle. Some of you are struggling right now. And I'm not here to diminish that, the struggling or the, the difficulty of what it is that you face. I'm here to elevate your focus on the one who's already stepped in to deal with that, to set you free, to bring liberation into your life, if you'd be willing to bring it out into the light so that it can be healed. And the way you do that is when you, you tell someone, right? Problem with secrets is that we all have them. We're all unwilling to tell other people. But the thing is, that's the one thing we need to do so that we can be set free. Because the minute you bring it out in the open, now, now all of a sudden you got to deal with it. Now people know, now there's no hiding. And now God can actually minister life and healing to that area of your soul, to that area of your life. Some of us, we, we play like Elsa from the movie Frozen. We, we conceal, don't feel. <laughs> Trying to hide, camouflage. Listen, guys, I think all of us know I ain't a perfect person in this room right now. <laughs> we're all flawed. We all are a work in progress. We all have stuff that we're walking through, stuff that we've come to the other side of, and stuff that we're still working through. But we have a high priest and mediator in heaven who's interceding for us, who's pleading to the Father on our behalf, who knows what it's like and has already taken all of that upon himself and delivered the final death blow to it. If we can live with the perspective that Jesus has already dealt with it, that he's already forgiven us, that he's already set us free, and work from that starting line backwards, we'll experience transformation. The problem is that we start at the wrong starting line. 
Rather than the one that Jesus establishes, we start at the one where we're trying to fix ourselves, medicate ourselves, clean ourselves up, and then come to God. Nothing against medication, nothing against therapy. All those things are good. And if you need therapy, praise God. And if you need medication, praise God that we have great doctors and medicine that he created and, and orchestrated for you to find help. I'm for all of it. So hear my heart in this today. But what if we started with the reference point that Jesus starts with? This reality of being cleansed from iniquity and wickedness. Cleansed from sin and unrighteousness. And, and that's our starting point. That's the, the starting blocks that we come out of our gate running our race in, not the other way around. I think for many of us, that's the invitation today. Truth is, we all have to learn how to walk by faith and not by sight. For some of you, this is your faith journey right now. Is you being willing to trust God with this part of your life? The hidden parts the parts that he's actually working on. Do we believe that? He says the good work that he's begun in us, he will finish. Guys, he's working on the stuff that happens subconsciously, the deeper levels of our soul. You know, you're like, well, but what about trauma? What about all the things I don't know about? What about when I was three years old and this happened and I didn't remember it until 20? Listen, God can deal with it. Amen? He sees it. He's big enough. So be encouraged today. We serve a God that can deal with these things, amen. So pray, James says, because the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. This is the context. Are any of you struggling with sin? Have someone pray with you. That's not the first place we typically start though. And my concern is that as the church, that's not the first place that we're starting these days. It's the place we need to come back to. And that's why we, we spend time when we have people pray down at the altars during worship or after our service. We don't do this to make a show out of things. We do this because we genuinely are passionate about prayer. We genuinely want to see you set free and healed and delivered and living the, the life that God wants you to live. Okay, number three. Jesus makes sanctification our new reality. To sanctify something is to make them holy. It's to make them distinct, set apart for a special purpose. When Jesus went to the cross, he made peace between us and God. We believe that? He took away our sins. He expiated them to the full. Do we believe that? And he made us holy. He made us holy so that his Holy Spirit could then come and take up residence within us. Listen to what Hebrews 10, 9 through 10 says. Then he said, here I am. I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. Verse 14, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. Some of you are like, I don't feel very perfect, Pastor Jason. The word perfect here means not lacking anything. He has made us perfect forever, those who are being made holy. Now in one sense, verse 10 tells us that we've been made holy, and then four verses later, it says that we are being made holy. What gives, Pastor Jay? We've been made holy, but we're being made holy? Yes and yes. It's a tension that we live in because of what Jesus initiated in his first coming and what he'll finish in his second. 
We live in the, the time between the, the now and the not yet, right? There was this tension. Our, our lives as believers are full of tension, are full of paradox. We're like, how can these two things be true at the same time? Because of what Jesus has done and what he is doing. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, you have been positionally seated with him in heavenly places, but you are still personally walking around here on earth, right? So there's a, there's a dual reality that you and I now live in as people who find their, citizen, their citizenship in heaven, as ambassadors of another kingdom, as strangers in a foreign land, as pilgrims passing through, right, all this biblical language, but as those who still find themselves having to pay the bills and vote and deal with the affairs of the day, right? It's this tension that we live in, this tension between who we were and who we are and are becoming, a tension between what we now experience still living in a fallen, sinful world and what we will experience when we see Jesus face to face. I love Paul's description of this tension in Romans 8, 23. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Anybody long for your body to be released from sin and suffering? For those of you that have had operations on your knees or backs or you've had to deal with chronic pain or you know someone who has, this is a great prayer. <laughs> this is a great reality to have hope for. He says, we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children. Right now, you're, you don't have your full rights. You're, you're living in the time between the now and the not yet. He says, we, we wait for, we eagerly hope for the day when God will do this, including giving us the new bodies that he's promised. Woohoo! As I get older, I get more excited about this. When I was 20, I, this didn't really make a lot of sense to me, but now that I started waking up in the morning with back pain, I'm like, oh man, God, the new body sounds pretty good about now. <laughs> the truth is we live in this tension we deal with this tension. I don't have time to go into all of this, but I do believe that Jesus' blood has sanctified you and it is sanctifying you. This is actually how we experience transformation, by accepting this reality, by accepting what Jesus has done for us, as I said, positionally, and then yielding to what Jesus wants to do in us personally every day through the power of his Holy Spirit, amen? Remember, you are seated with him in Christ. You're seated, you're established. Your life now emanates from him if you've been raised to life in Christ Jesus. And in this way, this is the starting line that you start from and work backwards from. You've been made righteous and holy. You're learning how to be righteous and holy. You've been sanctified and seated, but you're still being transformed and renewed each and every day, hopefully. So it's all about your reference point. I think that's helpful for us as believers as we remember this. I wanna invite you to a different starting line today. For those of you that are still struggling with sin, I wanna invite you to the one where Jesus says to you as he said to me and to many of us, I've already paid the price for your sin. I've already dealt with it. I've already carried it outside the camp to be remembered no more. I've already made a way for you to win in your battle. I've already done this because I am the victor and I crown you as ones that will carry my victory 
Those that he crowns with glory and dignity and honor. I've set you apart. I've made you holy. I've washed you in the blood. I've cleansed you of your sins. Now go and sin no more and run the race that I've called you to run. And that's the truth. We're running a race, but we're not just running it as, as crippled, filthy sinners. We're, we're running it as restored, redeemed sons and daughters of God. That's, we got to get ownership of that church. Despite the struggles that we face, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That's our position. So today, if you hear nothing else, if you're watching this, I want you to hear this. Jesus paid the full price for your sin with one sacrifice to rule them all. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.